Hey everybody, welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey podcast. I hope you're all comfortably nestled inside your homes as you ought to be. My name is Dan and I'm joined by John Fisher. Hey John. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing all right. I mean, obviously not as well as I could be, but given the circumstances, I'm doing all right. And a reason for that is that I felt a surge of happiness this morning when I got to uh, rewatch the game we were talking about last episode as part of our New Jersey Devils pseudo movie club. And the reason we're doing this, of course, is because we all miss hockey. We're looking to relive some of the best memories in New Jersey Devils hockey. And what better way to start than their most recent ultimate triumph, and that is on June 9th, 2003, when they took on the mighty Ducks of Anaheim in New Jersey. They did in East Rutherford at Continental Airlines Arena, and you and I have very different experience of this game. And speaking as someone who was at the game, it was very interesting to watch the broadcast back. It was very interesting to see or hear the kinds of things that uh, the all-star team of Gary Thorne, Bill Clement, and John Davidson were talking about. And I'd love to just break down the game further with, you know, context about the season, with the situation leading up to it, and really all the implications that uh, resulted from that 2003 Cup win. Absolutely. And it's also a nice throwback to not only an earlier time in the in the league, but also some of the names that you just take for granted. Like, it's not just, excuse me, seeing Scott Niedemeyer at his peak. It's also seeing a young Brian Rafalski. It's seeing Sergey Breeland, uh, uh, you know, coming into his form. You, it's seeing older players like Danico and Tommy Abilene. And even the coaches. You get to see the legendary Pat Burns face off against Mike Babcock. I forgot that Mike Babcock coached the Ducks back then. Yeah, and not for nothing, not even on the Devils' side. I mean, we know Peter Sikora was on the opposite side of this matchup, but how about Adam Oates? That's right. And Dan Bilesma. And Steve Thomas, former De- – well, he played for a lot of different teams, but he was a Devil in the mid-'90s uh, for a couple seasons. So, yeah, there were definitely a lot of connections back and forth between the two rosters. Yeah, so super cool to see that develop and to see who really had an impact on – getting each team to where they got to, because until I rewatched this game, I had no idea that Friesen had 10 goals that playoff year. Yeah, he was the big hero in Ottawa, and they mentioned that he had five goals during the finals, and I misspoke last episode. I thought Mike Rupp scored two goals. I turned out to be wrong. It was Jeff Friesen that scored two goals, uh, and apparently he did not score very, score very much after game two of that series, so... This was very much a coming out party for Friesen, who was a former Duck himself, to get out there and, you know, make it a W, arguably the biggest W in his career. Well, so let's give this some some context before we dip into the game itself. And as Mm -hmm. we know, and as, you know, everyone listening to this knows, this is the tail end of a run of dominance by specifically three teams in the NHL, the Devils, the Colorado Avalanche, and the Detroit Red Wings. These three teams basically had a dynastic decade for each of them. They traded off cup wins, you know, more often than they didn't. They appeared in cup finals. It was a very dominant period for each of these three teams, and it all started with that you know, 95 Devils team that was an absolute surprise to everyone. This is the third or fourth appearance for a lot of the players on this roster and a lot of players that would go down in Devils history and really NHL history. There's a lot of former Hall of... a lot of, sorry, future Hall of Famers in this game as well. But in 2002-2003 specifically, the Devils finished first in the Atlantic Division that we all remember. 
Uh, that's, of course, the Rangers, Islanders, Flyers, Penguins, and Devils. And they finished five points behind the Ottawa Senators for first place in the conference. So that would prove important as they matched up with Ottawa later on in the playoffs. But on the way there, they beat Tampa, they beat Boston, and then they went on to Ottawa. Yep, and that Ottawa series was very contentious, not just because Ottawa was the top team in the East, but in many Devils fans back then, including myself, still remember a lot of those playoff uh, disappointments in the late 90s after 1995, before 2000, that was at the hands of Ottawa. Whereas Ottawa was the young upstart team that was trying to you know, become a dominant team. Now they're the top dogs, so to speak. And uh, that series was a very memorable very contentious with one heck of an ending that thankfully went our, all of our ways. Yeah, and the Devils, you know, had few issues with Boston or Tampa. They won both those series 4-1. to one. I actually remember Grant Marshall's um, series-ending goal against the Tampa Bay Lightning because uh, I was at that game as well, but we had left before the second overtime uh... started because we had a family trip, of course, planned to Mexico the next morning, so we had to get back. Now, of course. we heard the goal on the radio in the car as we were leaving the parking lot, so at least we got to be around the arena for the celebration of that, but we knew the Devils were moving on to Ottawa. And that was a time where, you know, my dad was trying to get me to as many home games as possible, but I was eight years old. I had an early, early bedtime. I, you know, didn't necessarily have the stamina to get through all those late games and also go to school the next day. But very importantly, I actually remember that I did not get to go to games one, two or five of the Stanley Cup final. I actually only got to go to game seven. Right. And you and this this whole series was an odd one. Mm-hmm. Um in, and they made a big point of, about this during the broadcast. One, it was the 12th Game 7 in Stanley Cup Finals history. So Game 7 in of itself is not a very common thing for the Stanley Cup Finals. And second, at, up until this point, this Game 7, every win was by the home team. And it was it's stunning in retrospect. Like, you know, I'm at, you know, I sometimes wonder what what would be like if I had in Louis Trust slash all about the Jersey back then. Like what happened, you know, what if we had a blog back then? What would we write about? And I would be absolutely stunned about how after beating Anaheim three, nothing in games one and two, they drop two games in overtime in Anaheim. They get a big six, three win. And then they suffer a massive two, two, five loss to Anaheim where Brodor looked bad. Stevens looked bad. Lots of players look bad. And you're like, Oh my goodness. Cinderella could actually, you know, kiss the prince it doesn't have to be midnight yet because that's what anaheim was back then the thing about anaheim that season was that uh, they were not a dominant team yes they finished second in their in their division eventually they got 95 points but they had they were long shot odds to even make the stanley cup finals their preseason odds was something like plus 10,000, and they stunned the detroit red wings they escaped dallas they stunned the minnesota wild all because Je- jean sebastian jaguer played out of his mind in the Stanley Cup playoffs. It got to the point where, you know, by game seven, it was almost guaranteed that he was going to win the Conn Smythe. And the broadcast made a very big point about that because if you look at the playoff scoring, uh, nobody really took the mantle out of Anaheim. Like, nobody even had 10 goals in the playoffs. Nobody had more than Steve Ruch and seven in the entire 21-game run. It was all because Jaguar put up a 94.5 percentage uh, throughout the entire playoffs, which was is just 
madness. Absolute madness. I think they mentioned Minnesota scoring, what, like one goal the entire series. And Minnesota, it was a weird conference final that year because Minnesota was relatively new to the league and they just went on this run all of a sudden. So when people saw Anaheim, Minnesota, you know, uh, coming out of the West and then you have the best two teams in the East duking it out, you had to figure that whichever team came out of the East had a very strong chance to win, but no one anticipated that it would take all seven. Exactly. I mean, that's really the one of the many stunning things about this game and this whole series was that, again, a lot of times when a team goes on a hot streak, and especially a team like Anaheim in this case, because, again, as you said, they swept the wild. They absolutely shut them down. It was it was one goal. It was in the last game. In fact, they, they Anaheim won that one two one. And as we know, with the Stanley Cup finals, since the Devils went to seven games, Anaheim had a full week plus off of rest. So if you are in a hot streak, the last thing you want is a long break. You know, you want you you know if you're on a hot streak, you want to play the next game, you, the next day. You want to play in two days. You want to keep it moving. You don't want to cool off anytime soon. You know, strike while the iron's hot. You know, after those first two games in New Jersey, where okay, New Jersey wins both of them three nothing, you're thinking to yourself, all right, it's just as you said, the one of the top teams in the East is now hitting uh, Anaheim with a big dose of reality, but. Jaguar again rose up and the Devils just couldn't solve him and it then we got a repeat of what Anaheim has done to everybody in the West that season yeah and it was you know we we mentioned some of those veteran names and maybe they were more suited to calming the room down when uh, any of Anaheim's newer players got excited but they did have that veteran leadership that knew what it was like to play deep playoff series but you're right the reason they were there was J.S. Jaguar and knowing all of that this was a series that was defined by goaltender battles. This was one oh, yeah. until games five and six. There was no more than what? Three goals scored in a game. Well, game, game three was a two, three over, but it went to overtime. Mm-hmm. So to your point, like goaltending was the main story in this one. Brodor gets two shutouts. Then Jaguar gets a shutout and another overtime win. And then both Jaguar didn't look that hot in game five. Brodor didn't look good in game six. You know, it, it was basically a series defined by the goaltending play um, almost as much as it did in 2000 when that series was super tight after game one. So, you know, that was the big storyline as, as presented by AB, I'm sorry, ESPN on ABC. And uh, but it was true, you know, how how the fortunes would go in game seven would be whether or not Brodeur was going to have a big bounce back game and whether Jaguar can turn up the heat again. Yeah, and let me kind of set the scene as you arrive in the arena that night. And again, this is coming from the perspective of an eight-year-old me, um, who uh, my whole life, mostly, I've seen the Devils make deep playoff runs in the first championship that I was alive. I was born in 1994, but after the Rangers had already won. So the Devils were my first Stanley Cup championship. I had seen them go to the finals and win the finals in 2000, go to the finals again in 2001. It was used to a certain level of success. And when I tell you that there was not a single part of me that thought that the Devils were going to lose Game 7, I am being 100% genuine with you. As Even as you watch the game through, you can kind of get a sense as the game develops that there's no way the Devils are going to lose this. This is maybe one of the most perfect games I've ever seen them play. But, you know, on the way to the arena, you park the car, you go through that infamous tunnel from the parking lot to the actual (laughs) arena. And you know which one I'm talking about. Yep, over over the highway. And people have been there for hours. They've been tailgating. There are roast ducks 
on hockey sticks. There are signs as far as the eye can see. Let's roast some ducks. And you walk in and the excitement is unlike anything I've experienced before or since. And it's it's raucous. Every time there's a player introduced pregame, the stands are shaking. And one very important thing happened in terms of the lineup for this game. So we'll get to uh, we'll, we'll get to the game itself now. And it's that Ken Danico was subbed in for uh, Oleg Tverdovsky. So Tverdovsky had played 15 games in the playoffs, and Danico hadn't really played since what the second round or something. Yeah, he was out of. This was his first appearance in the Stanley Cup Finals, and the announcers Gary Thorne and Bill Clement made a big point about that to say, well, it's interesting that they're putting this guy in, you know, since he's been, you know, inactive, <laughs> and 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 Danico was very much at the end of his career. He was pretty much a borderline number six defenseman. Like he was at the end of his career. Clearly he was definitely a lot slower than he used to be. And the game was definitely not keeping up with his pace, but it was a bold move to put him in for Tverdovsky. Um, and um, it obviously worked out. Yeah. <laughs> it worked out actually quite well. You can but see we'll get the, into that in a little right, bit. Right. You yeah. can see the logic behind that move too, in terms of uh, th- this is a game seven of a Stanley cup final. And there's, not many people better to have in there than someone who's played in three other Stanley Cup finals as well. And this is someone who continues to be a heart and soul of the Devils organization. So it's understandable why, you know, for an injection of energy after that loss in Game 6, Danico was looked towards. And he he really, you know, justified his selection for Game 7. And also, Joe Neuendijk was injured going into this game, so he was not in the Devils lineup that night either. No, in fact, he missed a couple games with which was reported after the Stanley Cup was won. Of course, after the Stanley Cup was won, you, you're allowed to say this. And that noise you hear is all the notes I took for this game as I watched it. I believe it was a torn oblique muscle in his stomach. Oh, wow. Which is which is not exactly, you know, it's not exactly a minor injury. Uh, but this led Mike Rupp to getting into some games. And, uh, the, and, this, and he would be the hero of the night. I still stand by my previous statement. I was wrong about the stat line. But he was indeed the hero of the night. Um, but adding to the concept of energy, Nan, is that the, the, the game started with the line of Pascal Rayom, <laughs> Turner Stevenson, and everybody's favorite utility player, Sergey Breland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just going to jump right into it, Dan. That line was absolutely fabulous. In fact, I feel bad for those three because they could have scored two goals or three goals themselves. In fact, Rayom actually put a puck past Jaguar right. and Stevenson started celebrating. If he had a stick on the ice, he could have poked it in <laughs> and that would have made it three, nothing at the time. But you know, since the devils won the game, it, it, it's a, okay. You can laugh about it. Uh, well, yeah. So let, let's go sequentially, you know, we're, we're getting yeah, into you know, the arena. Thunder sticks a clapping. If you remember those. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They, and I got to say, Dan, you in the crowd, came in beautifully on the on the broadcast oh, thank you I, I tried to wait for the downbeat yeah <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> um you know it's a musician thing at heart but yeah we all have our thunders our cheer sticks i guess and they call them thunder sticks at some point i think they weren't allowed to be called thunder sticks against tampa bay because the obvious they came up with it yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um you know those cheer sticks i still probably have a few laying around my house and some of those uh, rally towels as well but even in that first period the line you mentioned was absolutely rolling and so was mike rupp himself mike rupp started this game with a good chance right away and he's mm-hmm. buzzing he is absolutely buzzing and keep in mind that he hasn't played in a playoff game this is i think his fourth game period that he's participating yep. in up to this absolutely. point absolutely 
And not only that, he wasn't just thrown in there on a uh, limited basis. He was right in the middle of Jamie Langerbrenner and Jeff Friesen, two guys who play significant roles on that team in 2002-2003. And they played a lot in that game, and Rupp definitely did not look like he was just a player hanging out with two better players. He he looked like he was the dominant force. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was also the 13th Game 7, as mentioned by Gary Thorne, for Scott Stevens. So yes. he tied uh, Patrick Y. I think that was third all-time uh, at that point. And it was, you know, that kind of leadership is not something you can really replace, but also he was really, really, really good at hockey. So... Good to have someone like Stevens and, of course, Niedermeyer, who was raved about on the broadcast, uh, comparing oh, yeah. his skating to Bobby Orr's at some point. Yep, it, Bill Clemente went that far, and Gary Thorne was like, really? Orr? Yeah. <laughs> like, but but, but Nieder, Scott Niedermeyer was having a wonderful game. This is a game that I would love to show newer fans who think that Scott Stevens is only about the hits or Scott Niedermeyer is just only about skating. I mean, those things were apparent. But this was a masterclass of defensive performance by both of them. And um, Niedermeyer especially. I mean, everybody gets mad these days about, you know, John Moore goes in too hard. Merrick Zidlitsky goes in too hard. Uh, Damon Severson goes in too hard. P.K. Subban goes in too hard. Niedermeyer was doing all this stuff. But I guess the big difference is that Niedermeyer was, knew when to do it and do it effectively and uh, come back and, and still keep up with his man. Well, yeah, he could skate for, fast enough. Do it for 30 like... minutes that kind of thing was fine for him where anyone else would have to think twice about pinching in. He was able to catch almost anyone in the league. I think, you know, I, I don't know if he ever actually participated in fastest skater. I think he did. Um, but he was definitely up there and frequently mentioned as someone who could keep up with the best of the best. So all that being said through this first period, it was a lot of defensive stifling from the devils and they had yep. chance after chance, wave after wave. And J.S. Shiger basically showed the reason that Anaheim was in the Stanley cup final. Yeah. I mean, this was a game where I kind of wish we had the concept of even just Corsi in this one, because, you know, while the devils went on to heavily outshoot the ducks in that one, in that first period, you know, the first five minutes of that game had no shots on net. Like the, but the Devils just kept taking attempts. They just missed wide, missed high, get blocked, etc. As you said, they came at the Ducks in waves. And this game is also a good antithesis to the idea that the Devils' style of play would be boring or slow. This game was anything but slow. There was not a lot of hesitation in that neutral zone. Everybody was flying in and flying out. And uh, playing with a remarkable amount of intensity, the sort of thing you expect in a do or die, you know, game seven in the Stanley Cup finals. Mm-hmm. But this was not by any means a methodical, slowly played game. This was this game was played at 75 miles an hour. And the Devils were the ones that were uh, driving the bus um, in the run of play and making Jiguer earn his money, so to speak. And as mentioned, the first, you know, Rupp got an early chance. Elias and Gomez had some early chances. Um, Breland was so close with a wide open one timer about 11 minutes in or nine minutes in, I should say. I mean, it took nearly 10 minutes before Anaheim got anything decent on Martin Berdor. And of course, Martin Berdor stopped it because he's Martin Berdor and that's what he does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that first period, you know, we had an appearance. Kiefer Sutherland was in attendance watching the game. I got to yep. check on him. And really the biggest opportunity Anaheim had was Steve Thomas um, and Berdor just squared up to it and it really watching this back it really is impressive how 
calm he looked the entire game. It really was impressive how he was square to pretty much every puck that came at him, especially in that first period when Anaheim was limited um, chance-wise. But yeah, so that first period, of course, they tilted the ice but didn't manage to find the back of the net, uh, including a comedic situation. I don't know if this was in the first or second, but Gianta kind of gaming Peter Sikora by shouting his name and causing him to do a drop pass to no one. In oh, that was Madden who did that. Oh, okay, Madden, Madden did that. Did okay. <laughs> and Madden was, Madden was really, he once famously did it to Mario Lemieux. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, other highlights from that first period um, the Devils took the first penalty game. Stevenson got a legitimate boarding call on Leclerc, um, hit from behind. Anaheim threw out four forwards, which is something that we see commonplace in today's game. Babcock looking for anything to be generated on offense and the devils just like today's devils uh were awesome on the penalty kill they allowed nothing eliash had a shorthanded chance um Jaguar had to stick out his toe to deny him the um you know the on the on the fake mm-hmm. uh, it was a great play and of course right after it because it's the playoffs like john you know eliash skates by Jaguar for no reason Jaguar hits him <laughs> with his stick and then eliash took him down right and no calls because it's the playoffs but that was an awesome penalty kill the announcers were already talking about the con Smythe, uh, regardless of result, mm-hmm. just because of what Anaheim was doing. But that, and, and also have noticed that they did highlight that the the Arrowhead Pond was uh, filled, which is imp- pretty impressive when you think about it. Since this was before HD became a, a standard, mm-hmm. they kept advertising that you could watch this in HD, but you didn't have an HD TV back then unless you had a lot of money. So um, this was not recorded in HD, but you still had a fan full of. You know, an arena full of fans who are going to be sorely, sorely disappointed in about an hour or two. And um, but the Devils were the better team early on and they just kept rolling. It was a it was a great effort uh, by all four lines, all three defensemen, even the pairing of Danico and Abilene, the old man pairing, um, played their roles very, very well. And Niedermeyer was an absolute joy to watch. Absolute joy. What really impressed me the most was that every single defenseman really pulled his weight in this game, and everyone had an active stick. Everyone was making stick checks. Brian Rafalski was muscling guys off. Obviously, you know, we talked Steven Zienermeyer, but Albaline, White, all those guys were really pulling the rope in this game. And one of the most impressive things, I guess, we'll talk about it when we reach towards the third period, because the line changes and really everyone understanding their role in this game, the devil's time on ice was so like the parody was unbelievable. It was wildly balanced. This game. Yeah. The low man, I think the low man had like 11 minutes, 30 compare that to Anaheim where Vitaly Vishnesky, I don't know if he got injured. I think he was, Mm. he only got four shifts and played like two minutes. The the lowest uh, ice time total was Ken Danico with 1123. There you go. And 11.23 is not nothing. That's over a sixth of the game. Mm-hmm. So and the highest you know, he played... was Niedermeyer. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. It was Stevens with 26.08. Right. But, you know, back then everybody played on every uh, possession. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, though, so we go into the second period here, Dan, mm-hmm. and we finally get a goal. Yeah. So this one... It was kind of weird to watch back because I didn't remember it being as broken as it was, but it looked like Anaheim was about to clear the puck out, and it's held at the top of the zone by uh, by Colin. It bounces off of Colin White towards Niedermeyer, 
Yeah. And so Niedermeyer and yet... whips it towards the net. And this is after looking back at that possession, Rupp had his stick held almost the entire time he was in the zone until he managed mm-hmm. to break free, get up to the slot area and deflect the puck past Jaguar. And now, of course, there was some gamesmanship as well that I obviously didn't see uh, from the arena point of view. But Jamie Langerman are slapping the knob of Jaguar's stick seconds uh, yeah. before the goal uh, went in. Yeah, Darren Pang gave out about that, and JD was said, oh, well, you know, yeah, I didn't catch that. And of course, Bill Clement's like, oh, you goalies are all the same. That's a good goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, imagine that reaction happening now, but Langerbrunner, just a heads-up play there to, I mean, was it interference? I'm not going to make a judgment about that. Obviously, we know how it ended anyway, but I don't think by the time the shot came, he was impeded. No, it would have it would have counted in today's game because Jiguer was allowed to reset himself. He got a stick in the way. It was a deflection. You know, you can't really fault Jiguer for that one. Um, you know, it was just one of those things that you always worry about when you're in these types of games because it could happen at any moment. But thankfully, it went for the Devils and the crowd, as you know, Dan, because you were there, oh, exploded. <laughs> ex- Loaded, and the announcers even pointed out that the upper deck was shaking. Yeah. So even their vantage point, they called out that, "Oh my goodness, it was that." And on top of that, and they, and I think the announcers were a little generous in saying the fans knew this too, that the Devils in the 2003 playoffs were 10 and 0 when they scored first. 10 and 0 when they scored first, and at that point they were 11 and 1 at home. So scoring yep. first and being at home when they scored first was so wildly important and everyone in the stands knew it, and they were not exaggerating when they said they were shaking. I've never felt anything like that since in that the entire building is just shaking up and down. Like I thought my feet were coming up off the ground every time we jumped in celebration. That's how loud it was in there. And really that's what kind of space it was. Things really echoed around in that arena as well. Yeah. Yeah. For those that don't, don't remember, I've only been there a few times. You've been there more than I have, Dan, but effectively continental airlines arena is basically, we put a, we put a sports center inside a warehouse. It's a giant warehouse. And as such, the, it's great for acoustics. It's great because it's it, the seat. The seats are steep, so you get a great view no matter where you are in the arena. But absolutely, you know, you know, not exactly the most structurally impressive looking or even the nicest looking arena on the inside. But uh, you know, credit to all of you in the crowd for making that happen. And I'm sure you guys kept it going since Anaheim responded to that uh, goal against by taking a penalty. Yeah. So Rob Niedermeyer took a penalty for interference. Then obviously. Every Devils fan was going crazy, and of course, eight-year-old me did not know that the Devils had the 30th ranked power play that year. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the Devils power play was not good in 2003, (laughs) and you got to see why. Well, it wasn't just not good, it was actually very bad. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, like, I'll accept not good if it's like 16th or something, but very bad is like, I don't know how this team not only had the fewest power play chances, but also had the worst power play percentage, but they also gave up the least power play opportunities and had one of the best penalty kills. So very much they emphasize the defensive part of special teams. They weren't really trying to go out there and score in the power play, even though they had it. And they missed their opportunity to extend the lead at that point. Um, yeah. You know, there's a takedown of Patrick Eliash by. Yeah. Ruslan Ruslan just basically, he just tackled him. And again, this is game seven in the finals and the refs have made it clear after the first period, especially after all the non calls on some rather egregious hooks and slashes. They, they, they basically said, look, we're going to let that go. 
poor Eliash. He got he got bodied in this yeah. game. He took some bruises, but uh, I'm sure he would tell you it was absolutely worth it. And then came the first time I booed the, my my computer monitor watching this game. <laughs> Because that's right, you were in the arena for this one, and you were also eight years old, so maybe you didn't care that much. Christina and oh, Steve. Oh, yes. So my notes, I will read them to you verbatim. Are you ready? Okay. This couple can yep. just go away. That is all I wrote regarding them. I have no interest in their storyline. I don't care if they got engaged after the game, and I don't really know why it was made a plot point, except for the fact that, you know, ESPN and ABC were owned by Disney, and it was Anaheim Mighty Ducks. You pretty much summed it up. I'll, so here's what I'm going to tell you what I wrote. Boo this couple! <laughs> Boo! <laughs> Let me tell you something. Men, ladies, and everyone else among the people who matter, do not base your personal life or your romantic relationships on the fate of a hockey game. <laughs> well, it was kind of funny because they acknowledged that, you know, this arrangement was made before the playoffs even started when they had a pretty good idea Anaheim would be going. And uh, what was the guy's name? Steve? Yes, uh, Steve DeSanta. Steve kind of seemed shell-shocked that it had gotten this far already. So he's like, all right, I better, you know, put up or, or shut up here. And, yeah, because uh, Christina's looking looking pretty unhappy that the Devils are winning one nothing. Well, and Steve doesn't get the benefit of being one of People Magazine's top 50 bachelors of 2001 like Scott Gomez. You know, he, well, he, of course. he's got a lot riding on this, and that is exactly. maybe one of the best facts I learned while watching this broadcast back as well. He was dreamy, Dan. <laughs> so as soon as they interview that couple, I think that's when the Ducks kind of realized that they had to get back into this game. Like, if you didn't know the record of the Devils from watching the Dynasty years, if you didn't know that they were 11-1 and at home at that point, which the Ducks very much knew, which, you know, if you didn't know their record with a lead, the Ducks knew they had to come back and score the next goal because... There had only been two previous comebacks in Game 7 when a team was losing by two goals. So they know they're in a precarious position, and they start to tilt the ice the Devils' way a little bit. And the Devils, you know, they not only weather the storm, but they frustrate them in the neutral zone. They frustrate them with when they Mm -hmm. have to start their rushes. They frustrate them in a lot of aspects of the game that they were known for. But yeah, the Ducks managed to, you know, start getting some opportunities at this point. Yeah, I mean... Even so, Anaheim was just de- definitely off their game in a way. You know it's bad when the announcers point out, oh, they're switching up their lines already. It's like, well, great, we're not even halfway through the game and Babcock is uh, mixing up the forwards. Um, you know, you know. to be fair, like Anaheim went nearly nine minutes in that period without a shot on net. Mm-hmm. So they gave up a goal, they took a penalty, and they, they're just not getting anything through. And it's not because the Devils are just lining up five guys on the blue line and and making them, you know, hang back. Like Anaheim's getting into the zone, but the devils are just not only keeping them to the outside, but they're winning battles. They're getting pucks. It's a big difference than what you see in today's New Jersey devils, where they may win a battle or get a shot block, but you know, full well, the puck's not going to leave the zone. This devil's team took care of business on zone exits. They did not mess around. And if they, even if they took an icing here or there and, and lost that face off, they still, lined up guys appropriately and got in everybody's way. Yes, Anaheim started tilting the ice for, I would say, two to three minutes. And that was probably the only time in the game where Anaheim had an effective four check. They had effective puck movement. But for the majority of this game, the Devils just ate their lunch when it came to the run of play. Yeah, Raf- and it was glorious. Rafalski also had a nice play to 
to to break up a potential goal scoring opportunity too. A nice little back check there, but it was again what we were talking about, where every single player was you know using an active stick, was positioned well, really knew where they had to be, which culminated in a sequence where Paul Correa was behind the net, daring one of the Devils to challenge him so he could pass it yep. off, and they just stood there waiting for him to make a mistake, which he did. Yeah. Yeah, so Ruslan Soleil is literally slamming his stick on the ice. And mind you, the crowd this entire game, Dan, has been loud. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know who mic'd up the crowds well, but they mic'd him up really well. And you could still hear Soleil just... <laughs> you like, he's... he he. I was waiting for him to start screaming curse words at Korea just to get his attention. And, of course, Korea was just so shell-shocked because it wasn't like Soleil wasn't open. He was. Mm-hmm. Like, that would have been the play. Like, look, you know, you looking at this in video, you're just like... Oh, here's Soleil coming. There's your option. Wait, he didn't pass it. What? What? What's up? You're Paul Korea. How do you not make that read? And that's this. That's just how much the Devils got into their head. And Burns totally outcoached Babcock, and the Devils players just demoralized at Anaheim as the game went on. That's how bad it was. Yeah, and it was, it was shocking to see how ineffective Korea was the entire time he was in. Um, it, at the Continental Airlines Arena, they were saying that through four games at a point in the third period, he had had only two shots on goal, and this was one of their marquee players. This is one of their yeah, he, marquee he's offensive their players eight. and captain. Yeah, he's their all-star. He is one of their greatest players ever. He's, I think he's in the Hall of Fame? Uh, No, I don't think so. Okay, well, he might have a oh, shot wait. at it. He might be as of a couple of years ago, actually. Okay, well, in 2003, he obviously wasn't because right. he was playing. Yeah. But, but the best part here, Dan, is that after weathering this, the three-minute storm, the Devils score again. Yeah, he's in, by the way, 2017. But yes, they do okay. score again. Yeah, and once again, it's from generated by a Scott Niedermeyer shot. Um, this one hit Rupp in the leg. Mm-hmm. And there's two guys. It's two-on-two two in the slot, effectively. So it's kind of a, a broken play again. And I honestly thought Rupp was the one that's found the puck first and slammed it into the left side of the net. It turned out to be Friesen. Uh, Friesen beat his man. Um, Sauer was there. Oates was actually trying to cover my crump in the slot, yeah. which was, uh, you know, any port in a storm, I guess. <laughs> and uh, as John Davidson uh, or Bill Clement clearly said, no sticks on sticks. Mm-hmm. Bodies were there, but nobody was covering up a stick. Friesen just slams it in. That's his first goal since game two. And it put the Devils up to nothing. And again, the rock went bananas. Yeah, I mean, that was the goal where, you know, you can you can feel comfortable with a one-goal lead if you're a Devils fan in the late 90s, early 2000s. But with a two-goal lead, you're, it's almost like a vice grip on the game. It's something that not a lot of teams ever managed to successfully come back from. And that freezing goal was, again, it wasn't anything, you know, too complicated or too flashy. It was just he got his stick down in the slot. The Anaheim guys were focused on wrapping up the tops of their bodies, and he managed to slide one through Jaguar, and Jaguar was not happy with himself for that one. And No, that was a bad goal. You know, I know the announcers were talking about maybe he was screened, he doesn't do well with screens, but it was a fairly high screen. I mean, you know, this wasn't like 10 feet away from the net. This was a good 25, 30 feet away. Um, it was just a really, you know, good on freezing to just find that puck and just rip it. You know, that's one of those plays where even if you miss the net, just have a go. You know, you got nothing to lose. And he hit big and everybody could breathe a little easier. And this is the and then point we... where we remember that Jeff Friesen was acquired for Peter Sikora. <laughs> and Jeff Friesen, <laughs> yes. sorry, Ale- and Oleg Twardowski were acquired for Peter Sikora. 
That's right. Uh, which, that... you know, had all kinds of implications because all of those players, except Turdovsky, were, you know, both those players on opposite sides, but two of those players saw the game action there and Friesen really ended up being, you know, the insurance that the Devils needed. But Rupp manages to secure another assist, and as does Niedermeyer. And then the Devils' defense continues to stifle Anaheim. Brodeur looks completely confident anytime the puck is anywhere near him. And then came yep. the Pascal Rion moment. Oh, Pascal Rayon. Here's the thing about Pascal Rayon. I remember, you know, in, in my high school days, you always see his name on like the training camp roster or on the Albany roster as a guy who's like, you know, he could make the cut, but he doesn't quite make it. He's a, an occasional call up. This is obviously his big moment. You know, he's in a Stanley Cup final, Dan. He is centering a line and he absolutely torched Kurt Sauer. He made him look like a you know, he made him look like a pylon and he tucks the puck through Jaguar's legs and all Turner Stevenson had to do <laughs> was have his stick on the ice. It said he starts celebrating. And then Sandus Ozelinch does his one good thing of the game. By the way, Sandus Ozelinch was terrible in this game for uh, Anaheim. He, he, I can understand why the announcers kept saying he's got an offensive game, which means he doesn't have a defensive one. Um, he cleared the puck literally off the line. Um, you know, if Stevenson had his stick on the ice, it's three nothing. Everybody's just having a party, and Anaheim would have probably just sunk into a hole. Um, the three zero would come up later, obviously. Yeah. But that was that was just the high, you know, one of the many times where that fourth line they had an awesome game, Dan. I really wish we had Corsi numbers uh, recorded back in those days. We didn't have block shots and misses, so we couldn't do it. Um, but that fourth line was just picking apart the Ducks to the point where Babcock couldn't get their fourth liners out after them because they wouldn't win that matchup, even against a quote-unquote tougher matchup against Steve Ruchin and, or Adam Oates. Like, they would win that battle. They would push to play forward, win pucks, get battles. Sergey Breland, all 5'10 and 170 pounds of himself, just bodying up bigger guys like Kurt Sauer just to get the pucks. And not only that, winning pucks. Well, he had to be. It was just wonderful stuff. He had to be basically bear hugged by Ruslan Soleil to stop an opportunity as well. Uh, Breland yep. was darting around all over the ice. Um, and, you know, we get to. Towards the end of the second period, Brodeur had 14 saves, and really it wasn't much of a task for him up until that point. They did not have too many quality chances on Anaheim's end because there was a lot of time spent, and they referenced this on the broadcast as well. Pat Burns just wanted to get Stevens out there against Paul Correa. All he Every wanted to shift. do was just pair them up against each other and also, you know, generally avoid faceoffs in the defensive zone because Adam Oates was on some kind of tear in the dot. He was, but and the announcers kept bringing that up. But knowing what we know about faceoffs, it's like yes, you win the faceoff. That's a brief advantage, but over the course of a game, it doesn't matter that much because just because you cleanly win, it doesn't mean you're going to do the right thing afterwards. For all the talk of oh, Adam Oates could win a faceoff that Anaheim get a shot off of it, that shot never came. Like maybe one or two times that may have happened all game, and neither time really concerned the Devils all that much. It didn't concern Berdor that certainly, um, you know. But, um, yeah, that second period was possibly what the best-case scenario where the Devils, you know, got a goal, suffered a little bit of uh, pressure back, got a big second goal, and now everybody can breathe a little easier. And Stevens was eating up Korea for lunch. Niedemar was still flying around, and Anaheim had no answer for his movements. And the fourth, the, you know, the Rupp line and the Rayom line were just – Taking taking care of business, Dan. It was great to see. Mm -hmm. It was just great. Yeah, and one player who didn't 
really have the best night, I would say, is Patrick Eliash. I don't think he was yeah. that necessarily present in this game. I think no. his line was struggling a little bit. Um, Gomez had a lot of shots, but yeah, Marshall had a quiet game. Eliash had a quiet game. That shorthanded chance was really his only mark on the game other than being bodied. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's okay. Like That's okay when you have other lines stepping up. And that was kind of how the Devils ran took care of business back in those days where, yeah, you want your top line to do well. But, you know, if another line steps up, that's okay. Like, everyone's got to chip in in some way or form. Yeah, so, you know, Rupp having the game of his life to make up for that, um, that missing case of Patrick Eliash, and I'm sure he was inspired by Lou Lamorello addressing the team at dinner the night beforehand, and really... They mentioned it, but that's why you get the veteran leaders that you get on your team, because their calm demeanor let him kind of ease his nerves going into this game, and he had the freshest legs probably of anyone on either team. So he was able to take advantage of exactly that. He hadn't gone through the slog of playoffs that everyone else had, so maybe that's a contributing factor as to why he was able to be everywhere in this game. But, you know, the Devils started off the third with some some icings. Uh, they, they really just kind of let the defensive game play out and weren't really threatened by Anaheim on any of those. There was a shot, a a flurry in front where I'm still not sure how Rodor saw it to this day, but he managed to make every save within the first five minutes. And then the game really slowed down. It did. I mean, the Devils did get some opportunities early on, or Mike Rupp had a really good look for his second of the night that he did not score because uh, Soleil, you know, hooked him like crazy. Um, actually, no, Leclerc shook, uh, hooked him like crazy. <laughs> Soleil was hooking Stevenson. Uh, Pandolfo you know, was all alone on a two-on-one and just threw it over the net. Yeah, that was that was pretty much like, yep, that's Jay Pandolfo for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> some called but, him you know, yeah. old Miles Wood. Uh, well, you know, yeah, Miles Wood wishes he was good as Jay Pandolfo. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Korea had one opportunity in the slot shortly before that two-on-one, and he just skied it. Like, that was just the mark of, like, yeah, this is just not your night, man. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's in the one game where you cannot afford to have a bad game, uh, you know, game seven. Um, and you know you know the, the Devils are starting to shut it down because the, the stories from the announcers started going on about how Burns was an ex-cop in Gatineau. And he was out of hockey. And then, you know, a lot of teams called him, but only Lou Lamoureux showed up to his farm yeah. in New Hampshire. And he sat on his deck and said, I believe in you, Pat. <laughs> I believe in you. And Pat said that made the difference. And it did make the difference because Burns absolutely outcoached Mike Babcock, who is no slouch in the coaching department, mind you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he it was it was a fantastic effort. And he gets his first Stanley Cup since he was a runner up in his first job with Montreal. And um, he definitely didn't get with Boston in the 90s. So, you know, this was his uh, his time. And he he stepped up just as much as some of the players like Rupp, like Breland, like Rayom, like uh, Abilene Danico, Niedermeyer Stevens and, and so many other devils. I could yeah, just I keep mean, going. Even because... Brian Gianta with his size five feet apparently was in there taking yep. faceoffs against the terrifying Adam Oates and managed to uh, hold his stick up enough that even though it was technically a faceoff win, like you were saying, they weren't able to do much of that opportunity. Brian Gianta, I think this was his rookie season, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe this was. And, um, you know, they already started bringing out the thing that we'd hear about Gianta forever and ever and ever. You know, he's only five foot seven, but he's got a nine foot heart. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that. Well, I mean, it's true, but, you know, there we go. They actually started openly talking about the shutout. And this was interesting to me. 
because JD and Clement are saying, oh, you know, Jaguar's still going to get the Conn Smythe because it's an award for the playoffs. And then Thorne is uh, Thorne is the one who says, I don't know, but or, you know, if he gets this shutout that he'll be one of a very the first goaltender to have three shutouts in a Stanley Cup final since 1940, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then we get boo this couple part two. <laughs> yeah, we're checking Christina's in with looking... them sitting in separate rows as if anyone in the arena cares what's going on with them at all. What's remarkable? What's remarkable is that this this was a large broadcast team. You don't, you not only had three men in the booth. This is before we had you know Pierre sitting in between the benches. Mm-hmm. Uh, the booth had Thorne, Clement, and Davidson, but they also had in the arena doing reporting Sam Ryan, who did most of it, and then Darren Pang and Brian Engblom would chime in with other bits. Mm-hmm. And it's like you really needed six. I know it's a Stanley Cup final. You you want to make a big deal of it, but you, did you need six people to contribute during this game? Yeah. <laughs> It seems like a bit much, but it is what it is. Um, so the closest Anaheim came to, uh, you know, narrowing the gap was a big chance by Ruchin in the slot with about five minutes left. I wrote 445. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. that was Marty's biggest save that he had to make all night long. It was. And then shortly thereafter, you and, and the 19,040 people there started chanting, we want the cup. Mm-hmm. And, and right on cue, the Devils scored their third and completely backbreaking goal. Like, you know, in the new NHL, when you have a three-goal lead, we've seen situations where teams can narrow that gap pretty quickly. Not so in 2003. Three-nothing against no. the New Jersey Devils was basically a death sentence, and Friesen really put the nail in the coffin there, and he just went off the rush, used the defenseman as a screen, just whipped a quick shot through Jaguar's legs. Yeah, I want to go through the play a little bit because this is probably the when people talk about the New Jersey Devils back then, they're talking about the trap and they're talking about to not offensive and they're slowing it down. You know, this is this is probably the only goal of the game that was, quote unquote, slow. And this is how quickly it happened at 350. Friesen ties up Stanislav Chistov um, in the neutral zone. He loses the puck and Steven knocks it away. Stevens knocked it away towards Mike Rupp along the uh, near side boards of the broadcast. At 3.47, he noticed that Friesian was loose and skating into the zone, so he played it ahead for, for Friesian. And then in two seconds, Friesian cut to the middle, used that defenseman, at, uh, Carney specifically, and just burns the five-hole J.S. Jaguar. And this was not only a huge insurance goal, this was another bad goal by Jaguar. I get it, Carney was in the way, but this wasn't like 10 feet away again. This was a long wrist shot. This was, it would be charitable to say this was in the high slot, Dan. Mm-hmm. And and as, as you said, everybody just went, you know, absolutely mental, absolute electricity. It was pretty much the exclamation point. Signed, sealed, and delivered. No way short of an absolute meltdown was Anaheim going to come back in this game. The cup was going to be New Jersey's. The announcers knew it. I knew it watching at home when I was 20 years old, and I know you knew it when you were eight years old in the stands. Yeah, 3.44 left, and really I don't think anyone stopped cheering from that moment until they left the arena that night. I, I, you know, the Devils did get another power play opportunity. There was a penalty. Yeah, Breland. Yeah, Leclerc uh, pushed Breland into Brodeur. Yeah, so... <laughs> Pure frustration. So that's a cross-checking penalty, and, you know, no one cared that the Devils were on the power play. They just... they Rupp nearly scored. <laughs> he, he did, and it would have been his second goal of the night, which would have been even more legendary than it already was, but he was already sitting on three points by that point. He... Yeah, very, very... Four players have ever done that, and one of them is Mike Rupp. Mike Rupp, and that was off a corner pass from Jamie Langenbrenner that came 
real close. And then yeah. right at the end of the game, we see Ken Danico maintaining the shutout by flopping around behind the net with no stick. He lost his stick. Shoving the puck along with any part of his body that could reach it and just laying around and being a an impediment. He put up a big block on Steve Ruchin that probably had maybe the last good look for Anaheim all game. Like one of those shots where like if he gets that shot off, maybe if it's well placed, that's a goal. But three got in the way. Um, And again, true to the Devils back then, unlike this season's Devils, uh, that block made sure it was moved out of the out of the zone. And the Devils basically kept they kept it up up until the last 10 seconds. Yep. At that point, then the game, it was like, as you see in college basketball, where it's like, you just concede defeat. Anaheim was like, you won. Yeah. Everybody's celebrating. The bench, the devil's bench clears with three seconds left on the clock. Yeah. <laughs> I guess if the ref, if the refs wanted to be really, really particular, they could have called like too many men on the ice. Yeah, but they're but never going to do that. You know? No, Jamie Langerberg was the last guy to touch the puck. And uh, we hear, it's my life by Bon Jovi. <laughs> and then they also well, played We Are the Champions. And I distinctly remember singing along to that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I got post-game notes because uh, thankfully this broadcast included the entire post-game ceremony. Uh, just quickly to tie up the game uh, from my notes, Rupp line was very good. Rayom line was very good. Stevens was fantastic. Niedermeyer was fantastic. I like what I saw out of uh, Danico and Abilene, uh, the old man pairing. Um, as I said, as we mentioned earlier, Eliash didn't have that strong of a night. Marshall didn't have that good of a game. Pandolfo, you know, wasn't that effective. I mean... He had his moment of glory and he penned all food it. But, you know, what are you going to do? But, hey, you won the cup. Weirdly enough, I don't think the fans booed Bettman when he first spoke. Yeah. Possibly because the song was still going on the PA. So you couldn't make that out on the broadcast. Well, so we were two uh, stoppages behind of where we would eventually end up with him. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, fans boo the hell out of Jaguar's con Smythe, but the Devils players clapped. So, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, fans... When when you know when uh, Bettman said here's the cup, everyone's like woo! And you know, cue "Born to Run" by Bruce Springsteen, because we got to hit all the stereotypes of New Jersey right, uh, music. Right. Uh, Bredor had seven shutouts that playoff series. Like season. Seven, yeah. No, no, in, not in the season. In the playoffs. Well, no, playoff playoff season, not oh, playoff, the playoff series. Season. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he had three in the finals, which is remarkable. The cup was announced. Huge boo for you know when Bettman said, "Let's celebrate both teams." Yeah. Which is great. But then when Bretman says, oh, for the third time, Scott, come on up. And there you go. The hoisted the cup and uh, right in front of Peter Sikora, who had missed the ceremony in 2000. Um, One of the interesting things I learned as well is during the handshakes that Rob Niedermeyer had been to the finals before with the Florida Panthers. That's not something I think I knew before watching this broadcast. So in all in all, this exercise really was an opportunity to. Uh, relitigate the context of the league and both these teams because they're full of interesting players. They're full of players with a lot of playoff experience on one side. I mean, on both sides, really, but two players in particular in Oates and Thomas who ended up being some of the most prominent players to never win the cup. Exactly. And going back to the Niedermeyer brothers, one of the other things that was brought up here and there during the series, and they actually cut to her a couple times. They didn't talk to her. Uh, Carol Niedermeyer, uh, Scott and Rob's mom was in the stands and uh, they made a point of it on the broadcast that she was openly pulling for Rob since Scott already won two Stanley Cups and Rob did not. And um, one of the uh, people on Twitter actually pointed this out, uh, bring back Lou at 
the real Devil's FA, said uh, she remembered Niedermeyer's being interviewed and saying she wanted the Ducks to win. Then when the Devils won, the camera cut to her, and this happened during the uh, presentation, and she looked absolutely unhappy. <laughs> like, she's she's clapping, but it's not a happy clap. It's like one of those... <laughs> You know, JD joked that, oh, she's upset now, but remember, she's staying with Scott right That's now. That's right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, you know, I can understand from that standpoint that, uh, and Scott even said in a post game interview with uh, Sam Ryan that, uh, you know, she hoped, uh, he hoped that uh, Rob was with him for the cup. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, making it clear that, you know, hey, hey, Rob, I won the cup. I beat you. But I guess the idea is that, you know, he never won it. So, you know, that was obviously where the hope was. Um, and eventually, Carol yeah. would get to celebrate with both of her sons in 2007. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, all's well that ends well. Yeah. Um, curiously, they um, kept cup. I was annoyed by they kept coming away to player interviews as the cup was being uh, passed around. Mm-hmm. Um, the Star Wars theme was played when Stevens got the cup. It went to. I took notes on who got it by the broadcast. So it went to, from Stevens to Niedermeyer, then to Eliash, then to Danico, then to Brodor, then to Joe Newendijk, who uh, put on put on the gear just to skate. Um, Winning his third cup, by the way, with three different teams. Yeah, Very exactly. impressive. Yeah, and he was brought in for as part of the deal that uh, saw J- Jason Arnott go, and that was a big surprising deal to me back then. I'm sure it was a big surprising to you mm-hmm. back then. But uh, he got his third cup. And then it went to uh, Turner Stevenson. It went to, um, oh, goodness. Uh, who was 15? I had his number, but I didn't get the name. 15. Who was 15? 15, 15 back then. Mike Rupp. No, he was 16. No, was 15. Wait. Just kidding. He was not. No. He was 16. You're right. All right. Well, in any case. 15 was Langenbrunner. Oh, duh. Yeah. Of course, Langenbrunner. I I'm smart. It went to Langenbrunner, then Pendolph, and then we cut to uh, Carol clapping, and then we cut away to Berdorg doing an interview. Then we go back to um, uh, we go back to um, Gomez getting Friesen getting the cup, Gomez getting the cup, Rafalski getting the cup, Breeland getting the cup. Then we do a hard cut to Scott Stevens talking to Sam Ryan. We go back to Pascal Rayon for a moment, then Pe- Corey Schwab. Then we cut to Madden. We cut to Newendike, where he revealed he was he had a torn oblique muscle. We cut back to Gianta. I'm sorry. We cut back to Burns, who handed it off to Jim McKenzie, who is the uh, third scratch of the game mm-hmm. jersey. And then a cut to Frisian. Then we go to Brian Gianta. Then it goes to the staff. They do the team photo. And then at the very end of the broadcast, boo this couple part three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as if anyone has contrived as the bachelor. Oh, man. Like. Oh, well, you know, they had a good run, but it wasn't to be. But you know what? I hope you make me the happiest person alive. <laughs> Gets on his knee and she's crying. And I'm like, this is garbage. <laughs> I've seen better acting in professional wrestling at a at a JCC or a YMCA. This is awful. <laughs> and uh, luckily... With spoon, man. Well, well, luckily they got the result that night because that would have been even more insufferable if they didn't win that game. The Devils, uh, that is. Oh. oh, yeah. Could you imagine? The, the Ducks win their first Stanley Cup, and this average-looking couple is getting married. <laughs> they were going out for seven years, and he decided to wait until a Stanley Cup was won before they would get on his knee. Yeah, well, so, so I mean, I, I guess that's basically wrapping up the, 
game itself in the broadcast. And it was, like I said, a really interesting exercise to look back and see who was on these teams, see the way the Devils played, and really appreciate the context of the time. And in terms of the implications going forward, this was part of that decade of dominance for the Devils and would also be the second-to-last Stanley Cup final played before Everything changed rules-wise. Everything changed in terms of the league arrangements. So this was one of the last vestiges you'll see of those uh, those classic eras of hockey. I think those those moments where you know everything is rough and tumble. There's a lot of pulling and grabbing going on. Oh, yeah. There's lot lot of hard checking. You know, very hardcore emphasis on neutral zone defense and. I think it was it was interesting to take a look back at that era, but it meant a lot to Anaheim as well because they eventually, you know, through the 90s when they first got started, they weren't that great of a team. But this yeah. kind of established their legitimacy and established it in the sense that they had enough interest now where they were willing to invest a lot more into the team. They they built the team out, they rebranded everything, and then it led to their first championship as well. And they managed to put together a really, really strong team uh, for that 2007 run. So it was it was nice to, you know, not have to have the Devils, not have that happen at the Devils' expense. But it was kind of the tail end for them and the beginning of the Ducks' um, run of, they had a pretty successful playoff run of playoff appearances as well after that. So a yeah. lot of things changed after that game. Uh, I think in terms of where the devil stood, you know, they were basically bringing back a lot of the same team the next season. It just didn't work out the same way, obviously. But I think this is when Stevens retired, wasn't it? Yeah, it would be Stevens last season. Um, yeah. Uh, he only got to play in, of course, I lose the mark here I was looking at. Uh, yeah, Stevens only got to play in 30, I'm sorry, 38 games. He suffered from uh, post-concuss- post-concussion traumatic syndrome. Is this when he got hit in the ear? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And in the uh, postseason, this was the one where, you know, maybe I'm one of the, actually, no, they got the, uh, jumped by the flyers in this one mm. yeah 4-1 I, I i have no very little memory of this playoff yeah. series um you know this was definitely a uh season you know otherwise the season was otherwise successful pat burns had another good season the team had 100 points the torch was being passed from stevens to niedemeyer um this would turn out to be niedemeyer's last season as well with the devils mm-hmm. as he won the norris and then he signed uh with uh anaheim yeah yeah, and it was really that which brought them the championship pretty much. It was him and Pronger being there that carried yeah. them all the way to the championship. And I think, I don't even know if Jaguar was a part of that one, was he? He was. Oh, okay. he, 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 was, he, was he, he was their main goaltender. Ilya Brzgalov, was, uh, he only got like five appearances in the playoffs. No, it wasn't just Niedermeyer and Pronger. It was also Timu Solani joined that team. Mm-hmm. A young Corey Perry and a young Ryan Getzlav were leading the way on offense, mm-hmm. and they had a number of players from that 2003 team that were still around. Not a, not a lot of players, but a couple of them, like Sammy, Samuel Paulson, uh, also was on the team. Korea was um, Korea was not on this team actually. Yeah, I just I just, I just realized that. Yeah, he was in Colorado because he he signed. Uh, no, he wasn't in Colorado. Yeah. Okay, I'm getting confused about a player who's not a devil. It doesn't matter. <laughs> in the bigger scheme of things to what we're talking about let's go to two pieces of feedback i received on twitter ahead of this uh recording Mm -hmm. about the game 
They're both very similar, so I'm going to combine them both. This one came from Lou Delia, Lou Delia, Lou Fighter at Lou Fighter. I was cautiously optimistic for Game Seven after losing Game Six. It was not hard to think about the 2001 series and what ultimately happened in that Game Seven. Once Rupp scored, all my anxiety went away. I knew we were going to win. Similarly, from Medieval Cow at Medieval Cow, mooing is optional. I remember Game 6 in 2000 was incredibly stressful going to t- double overtime after a triple overtime Game 5. It was real nice to have a relaxing 3-0 win. Mm-hmm. He, he, he compared the 2000 to the the 2000 Cup Final to this right. one. It, and it was real nice to have a relaxing 3-0 win. And then Berdor was screwed out of the Con Smythe, which was total emoji. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what emoji it was. Um, yeah, this was very much a relaxing win. I mean, we're not just saying that because you and I both knew, both knew the results, but just from how the Devils played this game, mm-hmm. once Rupp scored that goal, it was like, let's relax a little bit. The Devils got this, you know? And then when uh, Friesen scored the goal, you really knew you could, you know, have fun instead of just, you know, chewing on your nails, sitting on the edge of your seat, not wanting to go to the bathroom because you don't want to miss the high, you know, the, the glory or the uh, agony of defeat. Um, you know, it was much, much easier to uh, enjoy. But overall, it was a very enjoyable game and a very relaxing game to watch. Yeah, like I said off the top, there was never a moment where I didn't think the Devils were going to win this game. And this was maybe my my hubris as an eight-year-old as well. But from that moment on, like every time I think about this game, I don't remember a single moment where I was nervous. And I don't know why. I mean, it might be an entitled point of view given what I know now about the state of affairs in Devils hockey, but really going into that, you know, I had no reason to believe that they would be that they would disappoint me and they they didn't. They they really went out there and played what I still consider one of the most perfect Devils games that has ever been played. And so, you know, with that, that kind of brings us to the end of this discussion. It was like I said, super informative, super fun to take a look back when there is no hockey going on to watch some real quality gameplay and as such i think john you're going to announce the next game that we're going to be covering for this little project right so this game is going to be a little more contemporary you should be able to find it in hd uh which will make it easier to watch but this is a game where adam henrique became a hero and no i don't mean that game i mean the game where he was first a hero where if he wasn't the hero, we wouldn't have that game to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> this is on April 26, 2012, at the Bank Atlantic Center in Sunrise, Florida. Game 7 of the first round of the 2012 Stanley Cup playoffs. The New Jersey Devils take on the Florida Panthers. Yeah, so if you need any help finding that game, I'll be sure to post a link to the full video in the um, podcast post that this is attached to. So if you're looking for that, if you get your podcast from somewhere that isn't our website, go to All About the Jersey. I'll have the post uh, that contains the podcast up, and it'll have the link to this game so you can watch along with us and share some of your memories of that game going into it. And I think we'll have... um, a little bit more of a response as more of the contemporary Devils fans can really remember that moment. But, uh, you know, happy to get any sort of memories from anyone who I know was already on edge needing a Travis Zajac goal to bring this series to Game 7. <laughs> and uh, oh, yeah, that's they right. made us sweat it out. And really, one of the best moments, I would say, in Devils hockey history would not have been possible was it not for this game. So, 
very much looking forward to recapping that one again for you guys. And I think that should bring us to a comfortable end here. We've talked about, I mean, we could talk about this game forever and I'd love to. And I often do to people who will listen and then people who won't listen because too bad I'm talking about it. But this is, you know, one of my favorite games in Devil's history, this 2003 um, Stanley Cup win, obviously. This game, seven coming up against Florida that we're going to watch. Another moment that was very important for kind of maintaining the legacy that they seem to have lost these days. Yep. So, again, thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for watching along if you did. If you haven't, go take the time to do so. Um, It's a fun, easy watch of one of the best moments in this uh, franchise history. And hopefully you'll watch along with uh, Game 7 of the Florida Devils back in 2012. And uh, we'll have plenty to discuss, plenty of things to learn and relearn, and plenty to be surprised by. And no commercials, guys. This is this is your best opportunity to watch a hockey game with no commercials whatsoever. Yeah. Straight up action. So, yeah, feel free to join us for that one. It's been a great time, and we're looking forward to bringing you more of this type of content. And if you have any suggestions for anything else you'd like to hear, some memories in particular you'd like us to share, we're happy to hear those as well. So, for now, this is Dan Roselle and John Fisher signing off on the Garden State of Hockey. We'll catch you guys next week as the Devils take on the Florida Panthers in 2012.